you know, synergy. It's what it's all about. I forgot my Yoda costume for the show (laughs) today. It's really too bad. I'm going to very tempted to stop the show and make you go get it. (laughs) Talking about the NFL draft we are. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 4th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? How's it going? Good. How are you today? Oh, you know, can't complain. (laughs) Um, That tone of voice sounds like you can complain. I don't know. I'm confused. No, I'm just uh, low energy, which is a good way to start a podcast. Oh, no. (laughs) nothing sells a podcast like low energy right off the bat and that's also low energy voice you hear is good 538 contributor jeff foster hi jeff no i'm high energy this morning sarah i'm on my second cup of coffee i'm ready nice you guys i'm i'm depressed because uh my pick in the kentucky derby almost could not have faded more the only way your pick Stupid sandwich. The only way he could have faded more was if he had actually been in first place to start. No, but he was not. He was in second, and then he finished 19th out of 19. Yeah, but that was was the uh, stupid sandwich profile. It was a rabbit going to go out there in the front and and wear down the, the front runners. So, you know, that wasn't surprising. Would have been nice for you to I'm share that like with Sarah. I know Sarah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. I haven't hit a yeah. Kentucky Derby in, t- in literally 20 years. <laughs> so you you did not have uh, no. Medina's No. Who did you have? I think I Who did you ended pick? up, I don't think I picked it on the show, but I ended up picking Highly Motivated, which non-factor came in 10th. Um, but it was like so dumb. It was like. Oh, you know who won? The trainer who always wins and yeah. the jockey who always wins. Maybe you should pick that horse, folks. It was like, okay, it's so dumb. Maybe I overthink it. I don't know. Maybe. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. You're hearing the frustration in my voice because I'm on a terrible run at it's picking just this that race. You know, you actually know the right the right move and you refuse to make it that's right so delightful <laughs> like the second it was over it was like oh yeah duh that makes sense but credit <laughs> you know credit to Cornacki. steve Cornacki was the i watched you know they went through every single kentucky derby analyst nbc had and he was the only one that picked that horse <laughs> so he's he's there to stay it's good to find other uses for him. Yeah, you gotta have a you gotta have a non-election year uh, gimmick. So five thirty eight has sports. Woohoo! <laughs> you gotta put your put your Kornakis to good use at all times. Yeah. Maximize your Kornakis. Maximum. That's gonna be next year's winning horse. Maximum Kornaki. Maximum Kornaki. <laughs> call it here. <laughs> On today's show, we'll talk about how the NFL draft shook out and how much fans should get their hopes up based on their team's draft grades. Then we'll take a look at how the NBA play-in tournament is changing things, at least for LeBron James. And finally, we'll have a special guest join us to take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NFL draft has ended and rosters for this year are shaping up for most teams. Green Bay fans, try not to think too much about Jeopardy. But that means it's time for all of sports media to grade which teams made good picks in the draft and which did not. But draft grades are definitely not an objective measure of a team's future success. On ESPN's Greeny Show, Mike Greenberg asked Mel Kuyper Jr. about what the New York Giants and GM Dave Gettleman did well, and Kuyper revised their draft grade on the fly. Yeah, I gave him a B plus. I was probably falling asleep when I did that. That was a big mistake on my part at two in the morning when I was doing a lot of this stuff. Uh, B plus should have been an A. It really should have been an A. Uh, you're right. Uh, the trade back, and I'm an advocate of trading back. I say it all the time. Gruden used to scream at me all the time. No, you can't trade back. My phone's not ringing. I said, Well, then, then you're too greedy. Then yeah, you know, don't don't be greedy. To take what they offer, get something, and uh, and to go back and like say get that number one in 2022 from Chicago and get Kadarius Tony. Urban Meyer admitted, Hey, I loved that. I had him here in Jacksonville. I was the guy I'm targeting and. 
and the Giants took him. And Aziz Ojolari, who everybody was projecting in the first round, to go where he did at 50 after having six and a half sacks over his last six games and testing well. And then you get a good, real good slot corner in Aaron Robinson. And Ellerson Smith, a developmental pass rusher, a pounder and a 220-pound running back in Gary Brightwell. And Rodarius Williams has got length and had a pretty good career at Oklahoma State. That, that to me, and I, I made a mistake. I put B+. Plus. That should have been an A, Greeny. I did enjoy the Mel Kuyper deep thoughts at, at 2 a.m. bit. But, Neil, you wrote a, a wonderful piece that's up on the site right now about how media draft grades correspond to team success five years down the line. Is there a big difference between the Giants having a B-plus draft or an A draft? Uh, no. So, uh, yeah, what I did was I, I looked at things a couple of ways. I looked at draft grades, by the way, football outsiders, um, collected all of these draft grades and gave sort of a consensus grade point average to each team's draft each year going back to 2005. So I collected that. And then I just looked at like, okay, how good are these at predicting future success for the team overall? And also just telling us like, who had a good draft relative to um, the inherent value of, of where they were picking. So to answer your question about the difference between a B plus and an A draft, uh, we would expect the A graded team to be about a half a point per game better than the B plus team five years down the line, which is not really that much. And it kind of speaks to the fact that there's very little correlation between how well your grade was in a draft and how good your team will be uh, in the future at all. But uh, specifically, you know, when we're expecting the this draft class to kind of make a, uh, a difference. So like three to five years down the line. But the thing that that's not really that surprising because um, the draft is just like one component of how teams build. And it's a very sort of difficult to predict component. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that draft grade don't line up to how well a team does overall what i thought was maybe more damning was the fact that even if you're trying to say okay well just isolate the draft in general and tell me th will this group of uh picks play well in the future specifically will they uh outperform just basically if you only knew where they were picked and just blindly kind of guessed at how valuable they would be based on that can you tell us that at least draft grades? And the answer is not really. There's also like a, a pretty low correlation uh, between draft grades and that measure as well. So it's really the takeaway there is that it doesn't like it, it's funny to think about Mel Kuyper being like, oh, I should have given them an A instead of a B plus. It's like, bro, you could have given them an A or an F. It would really not matter <laughs> in terms of telling us like how well these players are actually going to play down the line. So what's the point of any of it, of any of the grading? There's like, no what? point, to, Sarah. To fill the <laughs> uh, space and our insatiable desire for content. I mean, I do think that it gives us like a... Um, it gives us a snapshot of what people were thinking. I do uh, when I was going back through the draft um, data collection that Football Outsiders did. It was kind of interesting to look back and be like, "Oh, that's in you know the Cowboys were like an A graded draft that year, and you know the they liked that they moved down to do this or traded for this pick or whatever." You know, as someone who consumes a lot of these uh, report card articles, you know, post draft and has been doing for a while, I, I think like that most I think the smart people who write the report cards get one thing about the draft, which is in many sense, you know, it's kind of like poker that you can be playing good poker and still be getting bad cards or you can be playing bad poker and still be getting good cards like the cards are almost irrelevant when you're just evaluating how a team is doing and i think like sometimes you'll see that baked into the draft grades like this team took a running back high and that's not smart so i'm gonna give them a bad grade or this team traded up um for a non-quarterback the jets um, and that's generally not smart. So I think there's two ways to evaluate. And I also do think like there is some clear observational trends like the Browns and the Jets, for instance, drafted terribly for the majority of the 21st century. And they were terrible. So I do think there are some truths in that. But I think you're right. Like beyond, you know, whether or not you hit your quarterback picks or not, which really will decide the fate of a team. It's kind of all noise and doesn't really matter ultimately. Well, you know, saying all that and saying the draft is silly and we shouldn't we shouldn't dig in too deep to it. 
let's talk about this one. <laughs> yeah. Who gets your A grade, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who gets who? your B plus? <laughs> well, you know, it, so I did think the the Kuiper um, thing about the Giants was interesting. Like, kind of talking himself into the um, the Tony pick. Because I didn't really like that pick for them. I know they wanted... And they have so many wide receivers right now. Like, they have a they have Kenny Galladay, they have Sterling Shepard, they have Darius Slayton, and then they, they, they picked up Tony in the first round. And he had been looked at as a second rounder. So I didn't... When that happened, I was like, oh, that's kind of a weird pick. Um, and then everybody sort of talked themselves into it because Urban Meyer said he wanted Tony at... <laughs> in Jacksonville like I I do I I think that's kind of an interesting thing too where the consensus the tide kind of turns on a pick or on a player that when everyone like oh yeah that was a great pick you know yeah and then that might be the most important factor of all of it is not how these picks actually do but how they're perceived and whether you can like leverage that to your advantage or not so in that sense the draft grades that are sort of like they're grading based on whether you reached for a pick according to their rankings, which, as we've seen, are probably not reflective of reality. But if everyone else ranks something a certain way and you can play off of that, then there is that level of gamesmanship to that. And maybe that's where you actually produce value as a um, as a picker. Have fantasy sports made it so that everyone thinks they can draft better than their team's drafters like I can find value in the fourth round of my fantasy football draft why can't can't the the GM (laughs) (laughs) this is easy yeah exactly um all right well let's let's talk about the Jets too Jeff how do you feel about Zach Wilson knowing that there's no way it's a coin flip on whether he's going to be better than the next I like what they're doing in the sense that, and you see this across the league, actually. I think this is like the trend coming out of this draft is that they appear to not be making the same mistake they made with Darnold, which was take Darnold and never give him any protection and never give him any weapons and also give him a bad coach, which is irrelevant to the draft. But but they went out and they traded up for the offensive lineman and then they got a wide receiver in Elijah Moore. So they appear to be surrounding him with players and putting him in a position to succeed, which I think is inspiring. And you see that around the league. And I think that's because the, you know, team building trend in this league is speaking of the Seahawks is the old Seahawks team building model when they won the Super Bowl of Russell Wilson on the rookie contract is, you know, to make the most of your rookie contract. So you look at the Chargers, they went out and they got a wide receiver, an offensive lineman in the first round. The Bengals added another wide receiver for Joe Burrow. You see a team like the Dolphins and the Eagles with J- with Jalen Hurts and, and Tua getting wide receivers in the first round and getting offensive line help. And, you know, in a case like the Giants, it's just kind of the same thing. You know, they have only a little bit uh, more time before they have to make a decision on Daniel Jones. So let's put him in a position to succeed and get another wide receiver. So I think that seems to be the way teams are going. Commit to their quarterback or completely abandon their quarterback and, and reboot and and commit to that new quarterback. It's the endless cycle. Uh, speaking of committing to quarterbacks, I, the Bears taking Justin Fields, I, I'm curious to see what you guys think of that pick. I thought it was a great pick for them and the, one of the smartest drafts from the Bears in a long time, and it made me extremely angry as a Vikings fan. <laughs> what did you guys think of that pick? I loved it too. I mean, I, I think he's a great player, and, and part of me wanted the Jets to take him actually, but I, you know, I don't know everything going on behind the scenes and why he was falling. Um, whether it was health, whether it was mechanics, whether it was the competition, but yeah, I mean, I, look, it's really funny. Like the Bears, except for like maybe one or two years of Jay Cutler, and this is like going <laughs> all the way through the '80s, just really never had a good quarterback. Yeah. So. To have an exciting player in that position in Chicago is new. You know, I'm just not used to it. And, it, you know, it's a big market and a classic team. And it, by the way, a very wide open division. Sarah, you can attest the Vikings have their question marks and the Packers. Who knows what's going on there? Um, and the Lions. So, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, in fact, like you look at the NFC in particular, it seems like every division is completely wide open. None of no one knows what's going to happen in the east the south 
you know, with Brady being 44 and Breeze gone, feels wide open. The West is always competitive, especially if San Francisco is healthier. So it does feel like there are a lot of teams that like their chances, especially, you know, in that that half of the league. Yeah, and usually, you know, I'm not a huge fan of trading up because of that whole uncertainty factor. But in this particular case, there was sort of this bright dividing line between the top five quarterbacks that all of which ended up going in the top 15 uh, and just everyone else. And the Bears were outside of that range before um, they made that move up to 11th. So and, and, you know, again, I hesitate to think uh, that because Fields was at one point ranked second behind Lawrence on people's draft boards back in like January or whenever it was that that like means anything. But also his drop uh, since then, we talked about it last week and being sort of leapfrogged by Trey Lance and, and um, Zach Wilson also probably doesn't mean anything. Again, coin flip. So it does seem like a value pick uh, compared with uh, where people were talking about um, him potentially going, you know, mm-hmm. a few months ago before we started our tape grinding and discovered <laughs> all of his uh, honed in on all of his flaws. But now, you know, maybe he'll be the savior for the Bears. Yeah. Yeah. Just get so much whiplash from from the narratives around all of these guys as we go through like. When he was in college uh, football playoff, it was like, oh, my God, this guy is so tough. You know, it's a a heroic performance by him. And maybe he'll even be drafted before Lawrence. And then, of course, you know, now he's uh, he wasn't the last uh, quarterback in that tier to be drafted, but he was the second to last. So, I don't know. The backlash to the backlash is always like, (laughs) wait, what are we even doing here? Well, so, you know, every team has has questions going into the season but you know again apart from green bay wondering whether aaron Rodgers is going to show up at training camp what storylines are you guys most interested going into going into camp this year well that's the really fun one we're not allowed to talk about that one (laughs) (laughs) no feel free (laughs) no i mean I, i don't know what else there is to say about it except like who knows what's gonna happen and there's now we've got i mean i'm also thinking about the whole Deshaun Watson mess and like where that leads because he was already looking like uh, it it was they were headed for a split with um, the Texans and now I don't know whether he'll even be on the eligible list to play and like I don't know the the mountain of allegations against him. Uh, so that's another. Uh, like, rarely do you have multiple top five in the league quarterbacks potentially on the move, up for grabs or whatever. And between him and and Rogers, there's still yet to to see how the intrigue of the quarterback shuffling works out this off season. I think there's a couple really interesting teams in the AFC. You know, I talked about the NFC and the general kind of just question mark hovering over every division there but i think the afc is a little different and there's a couple teams i really like what they're doing one is the dolphins i mean what brian flores has done with that defense and the way they looked last year was was really something great and now you know Tua, i'm interested to see now that he's got Jalen waddle and another year under his belt uh, an actual year not a you know abbreviated year where he was coming off injury and had no preseason um, to see what he does, because if they just have, you know, a little bit better offense, um, they're very dangerous. They have a, a good offense. They're, they're a Super Bowl contender. Um, the other team that I think is just doing great things, which is ironic, considering what I said earlier, um, is, is Cleveland. I think they had a great draft. Um, they got Greg Newsom, the cornerback from uh, Northwestern. Then they got Jeremiah Awuza Koromoa, I probably pronounced that wrong, who was, I think, a great value pick where they got him 52nd. I mean, a lot of people had that guy in the middle of the first round. So they're adding good pieces to a defense that already looks very scary and an offense that has a ton of weapons and it can put up a lot of points. So I'm really high on the... This is just sounds weird. Like my body's rejecting this statement as it comes out of my mouth. Um, I'm really high on the Browns this year. Um, the last thing I think that's interesting, which is always interesting, is is Mac Jones in New England. I, I'm just curious to see what happens there, how long it takes before he takes that job from Cam Newton. And, you know, New England's got other problems. They talk about not having weapons. I think they're the, the team in the AFC East that is now depleted of weapons for their quarterback. So I'm interested to see with a new quarterback what Belichick can do, especially in these kind of, you know, what is this, 
this is like the MCU phase four of the Belichick <laughs> dynasty, the post Brady part two, you know, new quarterback renaissance. So we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. And the, the Mac Jones pick also uh, extinguished any hopes for a Jimmy Garoppolo reunion in New England, which I think a lot of people maybe were uh, thinking could be a possibility too. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Don't rule it out. There's always there's always the reboot of this uh, of this extended Patriots universe. Yeah, Mac Jones to the Patriots did seem like like it was just like for sure gonna happen. After the Niners didn't take him, it was like, oh yeah, he's definitely gonna fall to the Patriots. Which uh, you know, I, I think that's what people want to see whether whether Belichick can, you know, what he gets out of him, what that what that situation is for Mac Jones, and whether Cam Newton has more in him too. I mean, that whole that team is gonna be gonna be very interesting as well. It was strange, too, because everyone was, you know, penciling in their mock drafts uh, Denver to take a quarterback, obviously. But then all this rumors, you know, before the draft that they were getting Rodgers and then they didn't take a quarterback and Green Bay didn't take a wide receiver or something to make Aaron Rodgers happy, which was strange, I thought. Um, It almost seemed like he was definitely gone. So obviously, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. But if this stays where it is and now Denver doesn't have a quarterback besides... (laughs) Drew Locke. I don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's great. You got another shutdown corner, uh, Vic Fangio, but okay, you're not going to score. Well, they still have Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah. Oh, they got Teddy Bridgewater. But I mean, yeah. He's pretty good. You know, he's pretty good. There's a ceiling on (laughs) Teddy, I think. (laughs) I continue to not understand what the deal is with Rodgers and the Packers, whether this is like some sort of joke they're playing on everyone or or what is happening but if if all of his discontent is real the trolling that the packers do of their like star their quarterback star. Yeah. is amazing like just draft a wide receiver i mean i don't even know. i'm not even sure they need a wide receiver they actually their we- their weapons were fine last year i mean i mean they have the best wide receiver in football he just you know wants another wide receiver they have Alan Lazard, formerly of Iowa State. What else does he need? <laughs> they did get Amari Rogers, a Rogers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to keep the jerseys confusing in the third round. But yeah, it, it seems like they're they're not doing everything in their power to keep him happy, which doesn't make sense. No, especially, you know, if if these if the draft doesn't matter as much beyond getting your top quarterback then just make your star happy. It doesn't seem that difficult, but but boy, they uh, they 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 just don't. Which is funny as an observer. Of course, the Packers are still going to come and win. So maybe we're overthinking it, and Aaron Rodgers is just tired of being cold, just in the <laughs> cold weather. They, they showed his teams he wanted to go to. They were I know he's from California, but they they were all West Coast teams. Maybe he's just tired of playing there. I think he just wants to host Jeopardy, I think and that's you can't actually, do that on in, your in, uh, spare California. time from from yeah. uh, Wisconsin as easily as you can from like Denver or Vegas. Gotta have access to Burbank, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see how all of those storylines play out and how this draft class ends up looking. For now, let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about the NBA. We're closing in on the end of the NBA regular season, and things are getting tense. The Sixers and Nets are neck and neck for the top seed in the East, while the Jazz and the Suns are duking it out in the West. But there's also excitement and a fair bit of friction at the bottom of the standings, too. The NBA's inaugural play-in tournament will pit the four teams ranked 7th through 10th in each conference against one another for the final 7th and 8th seeds in the playoffs. In the West, that means the Lakers, Mavericks, Blazers, Warriors, Grizzlies, Spurs, Pelicans, and Kings are still all jockeying to either get into or avoid the play-in. In the East, it's the Knicks, Hawks, Heat, Celtics, Hornets, Pacers, Wizards, Raptors, and Bulls still all in the mix. That is 16 of the league's 30 teams that still have a chance at one of those spots. Now, some players and owners have voiced their displeasure about the play-in tournament over the weekend at a press conference after the Lakers lost to the Raptors. LeBron James added his voice to the chorus. You know, where we land, you know, so 
Uh, you know, that's my mindset. And, um, you know, if this happens to uh, we end up at six or fifth or, or, or whatever the case may be, or if we end up in the, you know, the playoff, uh, whatever that thing is, wh- whoever came up with that shit uh, need to be fired. Um, but whatever. So the Lakers are currently sitting in fifth place in the West, just a game up on the seventh place Blazers. They could still definitely find themselves in the position where they have to win a game just to stay in the playoffs. Jeff, is LeBron's stance just based on the Lakers' current situation, or are there actual problems with the plan? Well, in LeBron's defense, I did see a quote from earlier, I guess it was, you know, when the, they first announced this in the bubble and he was pretty outspoken. And this is when the Lakers, you know, were not even close to that. He was pretty outspoken on him thinking it was dumb. So that's his opinion. I mean, personally, I think it's cool. I mean, I'm on board with this. I, I'm interested to hear where you guys stand. But to me, this is like making. This is a recipe for a lot more exciting regular season basketball games at this time of the year. And and that's that's a good thing, I think, for the league. I mean, and also it's a ridiculous because LeBron, like anyone, anyone thinks that the NBA and Adam Silver doesn't want him in the playoffs. Like, <laughs> in fact, if he goes into the play-in tournament and they lose in the play-in tournament and they would have had like the seven or eight seed, they will abolish this. That is, that is almost <laughs> a guarantee. So he can single-handedly get rid of it by by you know Losing. failing to make the, <laughs> failing to make the proper playoffs. But you know uh, you know I'm interested to hear your stance on it because uh, to me it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of relegation in English soccer where you know the, often one team is running away with it and there's no playoffs. But then there's all these interesting games with these teams kind of fighting to survive in the bottom. So now we have not only all these teams trying to make the playing tournament, getting a shot at the playoffs. We're having all these other teams that are trying to get out of that seventh spot and up to the sixth spot where they can guarantee a you know proper first round and it's just gonna it's just gonna make for a lot more high interest games whereas we've seen especially in the west the last few years last decade where a team is you know maybe they're jockeying for one playoff opponent or another but it's just ultimately not that interesting and there's a little bit of interest in you know who makes the eighth seed but as we know even making the eighth seed in the nba is you know, it doesn't mean anything. It means you're going to lose in the first round almost certainly. Um, it's not a sport, you know, like the NHL where we've seen eight seeds win win the Stanley Cup. I get it from LeBron's perspective. Like, personally, you know, he has obviously had a lot of wear and tear on his body and would li- not like to invite more of that, especially with the possibility that it, comes like you said Jeff with them ends with them not making the playoffs that would be uh disappointing for him uh if they would have made it under normal circumstances but it is funny that like you know it's not just him it's like Luka Doncic and Mark Cuban and like all these guys it does seem like they didn't really read the rules around the play-in tournament before the season and then (laughs) they like realized that they were in danger of being in it like you know this month and they were like oh Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I uh, didn't didn't quite know about how that worked. Uh, this seems dumb because I might have to be in it. So like in another universe where the Lakers were, you know, where Davis and James don't get hurt and they're like a top two seed or whatever. I'm guaranteeing you LeBron does not have any opinion probably about it. Or if anything, he has a positive opinion because it would wear down one of the teams that they might have to face in the in the first round. So he probably wouldn't have been asked either. No, he wouldn't have been asked either. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's sort of like obviously uh, his opinion is mostly based on the fact that it affects his life and uh, not about the league as a whole. And yeah, I don't think that there are problems with it. I like it. Um, I, I think that. Like you said, Jeff, it really does inject some much needed interest into a NBA regular season that we have argued many, many times is way too long, way too boring, way too irrelevant. And even the like for these specific subset of teams in a normal circumstance, you're right. They, you know, they're they're obviously they want to make the playoffs. They want to be able to say they made the playoffs, but it's not like they have aspirations beyond that. When you're talking about a team like the Lakers in that conversation, they do have aspirations beyond that. So we might end up just through circumstances this first year that they have it, having teams not just 
cannon fodder you know like i think normally you would expect the number seven through ten teams uh in a conference to just be like okay they're just happy that they can say they made the playoffs whoever kind of comes out ahead on that but if it is a team like the lakers and it's not just the lakers you know some of the other teams uh, particularly in the west i think um i don't think we can make a case uh with a straight face that like the Hornets or the Pacers have like championship aspirations. We thought the Celtics might going into the season. I think maybe that ship has sailed barring some kind of incredible flipping the switch come postseason time. But you know, like the Blazers are a good team. The Mavericks, if they do fall into it, that's a good team. That's a team that on paper we thought could, could have aspirations. And certainly the Lakers and the Warriors are even interesting. Certainly Steph Curry is great. So there, there's a lot of like interesting ways this could pan out that, has us talking rather than checking our calendars or our watches and being like okay is this season over yet can we finally start the playoffs yeah I mean it's it's there's like these two things going on this year with with the teams that have not historically had a ton of success or recently anyway um, a ton of success in the playoffs as the top seeds like Utah Phoenix Denver are our three top seeds in the West right now and then you have these teams at the bottom like that feature Steph Curry and you think well maybe you know maybe this is the year an eight seed can beat the top seed I mean I I'm sure I, I would not want to face Steph Curry in in the first round of the NBA playoffs. That's not how it's supposed to work, right? You're supposed to get yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to get one of the best players of his generation facing you um, in the first round. So so there's that, and then this added like like chaos of the of the play in like meeting each other where you really don't know this year. Maybe one of those teams does go farther than than normal, um, and it's making it interesting i mean there's usually at this point in a regular season we know what's happening maybe there's a fight for the eighth seed but like it's not usually that interesting this is really interesting it's making me care about the last two weeks of the season in a way that i often don't and i'm just ready for the playoffs to start right and even the first round of the playoffs once we're past the play-in tournament could be much more interesting than than it is in in most years so, I mean, I think the NBA recognized that they had a problem and are trying something different. And that we should applaud that, I think. I mean, there's there's a you can mess with the formula in a way that doesn't all like really change the true dynamics of the sport. This is the difference between the NBA messing with something and the MLB messing with something trying to change like the fundamental nature of the sport. Like adding a little intrigue into who gets those last spots does not fund- fundamentally change the nature of the NBA playoffs. The other answer for LeBron is like, well, you guys could have, you know, played better. <laughs> you don't get hurt. Yeah. And actually, if they do lose LeBron from the playoffs and do decide to get rid of this because of, you know, the, the internal ratings consequences of that or or the backlash you know from the fans it'll be a shame because i do think this is an exception i think we could go 10 more years and not see a situation like this where a team of the lakers caliber because of injuries finds themselves in this position where they have to go into the play-in tournament um and and i think you're right sarah that this does feel like a year where we might see an eight over a one, which also I think takes special circumstance. You remember the last time it happened, it was because Derrick Rose you know, got injured in, in the first round as a one seed on the Bulls and, and they lost to the Sixers. So it does feel like, you know, I think with the Lakers, if they end up, you know, in that situation or maybe with the Warriors to a lesser extent, that could be the the stars aligning for for a big upset in the first round, which which is also exciting. I like that. I still like, I, I even like, I like the Utah Jazz. I like them as a team and I'm still like, yeah, they might lose in the first round. <laughs> like <laughs> I like refuse to believe in them, even though I like them and do believe in them. It's so funny. Well, so, so the, the play in tournament, it's, it seems to have been born of the desire, you know, to keep the end of the regular season exciting, but also to keep teams from tanking. The first part of that is certainly true, but but what about the second? Neil, is this kind of attorney enough of an incentive to prevent tanking? 
Yeah, I mean, it it can't hurt, right? You know, I think the NBA has spent a lot of time ever since um, Sam Hinkie dropped the process era upon us, uh, trying to build in these kind of firewalls uh, to discourage teams from doing it. They changed the lottery odds a few years ago and made them kind of flatter uh, and, and gave you less incentive to have the worst record. And then here, they've given teams incentive to at least stay in the mix, and we're seeing that. Like you mentioned, it's not just uh, cutting off at the Wizards at the 10 seed in the East who are 30 and 35, but also extends down to the Raptors who are 27 and 38 and the Bulls at 26 and 39. Those are not like good teams, although the Raptors are a little bit of a head scratcher because they're supposed to be a lot better than this. But but we're and we are seeing some teams just be totally bad like usual like the pistons are 19 and 46 and the rockets my goodness the rockets are 16 and 49 which is not surprising after you kind of liquidate all of your front office and on-court talent uh and and coaching talent uh but at the same time yeah probably we would see teams like the bulls and the raptors and the wizards uh and over in the West, maybe like the Pelicans or, you know, the the Kings also, they're in, still theoretically in the mix. You know, they're 27 and 37. We would see more of those teams drop down into that bad tier probably without this. And again, it is for the right to be probably obliterated in the first round. So it's not like, you know, I don't think it's like much more than a marginal change to your incentive structure. Um, But I've always said that the NBA needed more incentives to try to get teams to just gun for like 500, just try to be like respectable and see what happens um and i already think that the idea of that is kind of underrated or at least was at the height of the tanking phenomenon because of what we talked about with the nfl draft well that's also true for the nba where it's like you you just don't know as much as you think you know about who's going to be good in the draft probably outside of the top pick uh but you know they've they've also added some little incentives to try to um, make the the numbers around tanking make even less sense. Uh, and, and so I think it's kind of working this year. And I'm curious to see how the long term, I hope they keep it. And I hope that teams kind of know they can plan around that because I do think that that will have an even greater kind of effect over the next um, decade uh, of how you think about building a team and how you think about trying to kind of be in that, that play tournament rather than just going all out for for the number one overall pick i think that's right if the intended consequence is to limit the number of teams that are tanking then i I think you're right i think i think it is working i think you will still see of course teams will and are actively tanking you look at a team like the thunder which Probably one of oh, too many games. Oh, that sixty-point loss didn't give it away, <laughs> and they were tanking. Than it expected, <laughs> and now they're they're trying to catch up, gain ground on you know the the Pistons and the Magic and all these other teams at the bottom in the last couple of weeks. So y- if you want to tank, that option's still open to you. But you, it is interesting that you like with the Thunder. It wasn't they weren't. Yeah, they weren't trying to tank all season. I mean, who knows what they were trying to do, but they were still an exciting, interesting team, had some, you know, interesting young players, even when they, you know, even with all of their trades, like their their ridiculous stockpile of draft picks over the next couple of years were like, do they even need another top pick? At some point, they're going to have more picks. Maybe they already have more picks than they have like <laughs> slots available, roster slots available. Um, but like the rest of those teams, you know, Cleveland... Um, the Magic have their own issues. The Pistons, like those, are teams that aren't necessarily tanking. They're just bad, and like that's kind of refreshing, right? Like you can have a bad team that's not trying to be bad. Maybe that's not all that efficient, but but they're just bad because they happen to be bad, and they're gonna try to not be bad next year. And that's like a little bit more in the spirit. Of competition, I think. So I mean, that but that the, seems the a little bit more. The Pistons got rid of Blake Griffin. I mean, the Pistons have also made themselves worse as the season progresses. Did with, they you know, make with themselves the worse by getting rid of Blake Griffin? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> they weren't good. Okay, with maybe him. not. I mean, in theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Rockets are probably not a better trying to win. <laughs> yeah. 
the Rockets are probably a better example of that. Where like, yeah, losing Harden. Although even with him, I mean, given his effort level with the Rockets before that trade, it wasn't like he was necessarily inspiring them to great things. But yeah, the Rockets' record right now, if prorated over an 82-game schedule, is still above 20 wins. That's not great, but I mean, it's like a little bit better. If that's the worst record in the league, that's better than like the days when we're seeing the the Sixers flirt with, you know, will they win double digit games uh, right. or whatever it was at like the peak. They won 10 games in 2016. Uh, so <sighs> yeah. the, even the Rockets are on pace to have double the wins per 82 games that the hinky, uh, the depth of the hinky Sixers hit. <laughs> that was, that was a depth. I mean, say what you will of the process that the Sixers are in first place in the East. <laughs> so teams are incentivized to do this. Well, was that I mean, more because maybe they... not exactly the same way? You yeah, know, they also have a new general of... manager, so there's yeah, that too. True, <laughs> true. But it, you know, it took a it took a long and winding road, but now there is a good team there. So yeah. Well, there. I wanted to touch on one other thing that that Neil mentioned that like as as a team. If they keep the play-in tournament and teams have to build thinking about it, that's also true from the top teams, too, that you would build so that you don't find yourself on the line there. And so maybe that does, like, touch on how teams use load management and not hold out their stars as much. That's another thing that the the league is concerned about, that, you know, that, that we don't hold out players all the time that I think is interesting too would the Lakers have I mean the Lakers injuries are just not something you can plan around obviously but like would they have held out LeBron or AD from any of the you know load management kinds of games would the Clippers hold out Kawhi you know going forward if they know they don't want to go on on that line I mean that's kind of an interesting idea and maybe it doesn't end up changing that much but it could I don't know could it yeah no I think it will I mean on the margins I think you'll still see load management for sure but I think you'll also see teams you know make sure they have one of those top spots and 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 don't find themselves in a situation like the Lakers are in and I think this is another case you know much like the playing tournament it seems where the interests of the fans and the interests of the players um, and the teams do not align because I think if another consequence of this is fans get to see more stars at these games and, and you know, fewer stars sitting out games, then I think fans are going to be happy, you know, in terms of making this final stretch of the regular season interesting. But, you know, obviously the players aren't going to, this is another reason the players not to like this. <laughs> well, it's about time they sided with the fans. <laughs> That's my populist, you know. I said fans uh, or dollars. I could have also said dollars. <laughs> True, but hey, who pays them the dollars but right. the fans? Right, right, absolutely. All right, well, we have a couple of weeks left in this regular season before we get to see that play-in tournament and, uh, and see how that all shakes out, whether LeBron is in it or not. We can leave this here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll be back for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, we are delighted to welcome journalist and author Jake Fisher, who just released a new book called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. It is out today from Triumph Books. Hi, Jake. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited, too. Thank you guys for having me. And congrats on, on release day. That's that's huge. Thank you. It's been three years, 300 interviews, but we finally made it. So I'm excited oh, for these stories to get out there. <laughs> so walk us through a little bit about the, you know, the origins of the book and what you wanted to cover with it. Well, for your audience, um, you know, I grew up in Philly. I went to school in Boston. So, so being around the Sixers and the Celtics as they were doing this, as they were tanking to build a championship contender really is what brought on my radar. But the grand scheme of it is that, as these analytical-minded executives stemming from Sam Pristy and Daryl Morey really rose to power around the league, we saw Rob Hedigan in Orlando, we saw Ryan McDonough in Phoenix, Pete D'Alessandro goes to Sacramento, David Griffin rises to power in Cleveland. It wasn't just Sam Hinkie in Philadelphia. The numbers suggested that the most championship teams win with two all-star, superstar-type talented players, and the easiest way to get them is at the top of the draft. And it just became a trend that, you know, polarized the league, and very few topics, I think, in sports truly are polarizing, and it just 
became something that really needed to be encapsulated in a book like this. Yeah, and and you mentioned sort of the logic of trying to get one of those top players and being able to do that by deliberately making a team bad. But so was there a particular reason why in this moment that it just took over front offices? Was it just the influx of analytics types like Sam Hinkie sort of sitting down there and doing the math and thinking like, oh, this seems like kind of a logical extension of the the thought process behind you know, the, the reason why there was a lottery to begin with, I guess. Yeah, it, it's that it's that flux of guys, like you, like you mentioned, but also it's twofold. It's the fact that, you know, flashback to 2010 to 2014 NBA, the Miami Heat were, you know, not, they're not, they weren't going to win two. They were going to win not five, not six, not seven. And coincidentally, that 2014 draft was considered to be the next version of that 2003 class that produced LeBron, D. Wade, and Chris Bosh, not to mention Carmelo and others. So a lot of these executives thought, you know, we're not going to beat these guys anyway. We might as well tank to get this next generation of those guys. And by the time they're out of their prime, we'll be competing, which honestly has kind of come to fruition, right? In Philly, even Boston, they're not a contender necessarily, but they've got their two guys. Phoenix, they didn't think they'd do it with Devin Booker, but they're back, you know. Um, Obviously, the joke's on everybody else. LeBron's still in his prime, but the strategy did kind of pay dividends for a lot of teams. I I like to say the book is kind of anecdotal history of a bunch of different case studies of rebuilding, right? And for Philly's example, they are the most polarizing, the most brazen, the most you know, full effort possible where they're fielding a team that isn't going to win much more than 10 games and trying to put together a roster that's literally built to lose, right? Like the coaches and the players, they are trying as much as they can to win games, to battle, to compete, to fight on defense. But if you're putting out a roster that's intentionally full of players who are right on the barrel of you know, D-League type players or guys who went undrafted, guys like Robert Covington or TJ McConnell, who they do become NBA players one day. But in the meantime, talent and experience ultimately wins the average game in April. And that just was never going to happen for Philadelphia during Sam Hinkie's tenure at, at the moves he was pulling. But eventually they were going to ultimately win this grand prize of being a perennial contender. And I think, you know, the long run, it ultimately has proved successful. But in the, in the interim, it was, it was the number one storyline. This, this was happening the same exact time Golden State was winning championships. Stephen Curry was revolutionizing the game with his three-point attempts. And the Warriors won 73-9 in 2015-16. And the Sixers losing a potentially historic number of games was, was stealing just as many headlines as Golden State. So I think that right there is just encapsulates how much of a moment it truly was. We we were talking earlier on the show about the play-in tournament for the NBA this year and whether that disincentivizes tanking a little bit. Is that the kind of step that you that you think will be successful to or did we already do that with with the with the the draft lottery reforms yeah i think we've seen certain teams like the washington wizards right i mean they have a certain um benchmark that they have to reach because they're trying to keep bradley beal like they already have one of these guys that you tank for they got him number three overall they're trying to build a contender around him they don't have the option to tank but then you see teams like orlando who you know, they, they got a couple of bad injuries, and all of a sudden this team that was, I think they you know they were starting off with the four seed in the East a couple weeks of the season. They got a couple injuries. They have to trade these guys. They have to tank because they're Orlando. They're in a small market. They're not going to get somebody in free agency. And they were only a couple games out of the playing tournament. But when the trade deadline came along, they realized our best option is to trade Nikola Vucevic, trade Aaron Gordon, trade Evan Fournier, and tumble down the standings. And now they're playing the Pistons last night in a game that was considered to be a game for the number one pick. And so as as much as the playing tournament exists, Mike Zarin, the Celtics assistant general manager, told me as long as record plays some type of factor in draft standings and draft positioning, teams will lose on purpose, whether it's a tournament, not just a playing tournament. Like if all the teams, an idea that was kicked around in 2014 was, you know, take all the non-playoff teams and put them in a tournament and have them compete for the number one seat, the number one pick, excuse me. And, you know, that'll put young guys in a playoff type environment and it will, you know, have that winning type atmosphere that Philly was accused of not having, right? But then again, you'll have teams tanking out of the playoffs to get into that tournament. So as long as record is involved, I think we're always going to see teams losing on purpose because the benefits are just so clear. 
So then what do you think the future is? Do you think that the league is happy right now with kind of the changes making uh, a, a little bit of a difference toward it, even if tanking is kind of inevitable? Or do you think they ever will go towards some of these ideas like Mike Zarin's idea of the wheel and all of these other things where where it's not about record? That's That seems extreme, but it seems like the NBA is has been willing to tinker with things. So yeah, I'm curious what you think about the future of anti-tanking policies. For sure. I, I personally am partial to the wheel i think it's brilliant um and i think it's the one method that's been pitched that really does separate record from draft positioning but the league is definitely happy with what they've come up with and as many people with the sixers at that time and still with the sixers today have told me the league really only cared about tanking becoming a narrative and the second it was leading espn and sports center and and being a topic even on nbc and cnn like the fact that it was creating such a national you know firestorm of people throwing up their hands and saying this is decrying you know the principles of the game and sport itself um that was an issue and and now that it's not like okc is kind of considered to be a fun little project right oh they've got 17 <laughs> first round picks oh they're benching al horford for the rest of the season the sixers weren't doing that if anything some of these teams right now are more brazenly tanking than Philadelphia ever did under Sam Hinkie. They were never sending veterans home for the rest of the year. But the fact that it's no longer a top storyline, I think they're okay with that. And I think that the fact the play-in tournament is getting all this attention and buzz, you know, shout out to LeBron and Luka <laughs> complaining about it, I think they're happy with it. If LeBron or Luka Doncic does lose in, in this play-in tournament and they're out of the playoffs, yeah, maybe they'll consider it. I know a lot. I wrote for Bleach Report yesterday. A lot of executives and coaches around the league wish the play-in tournament only featured um, the 8 seed playing the 9 and 10 seed. So maybe that will change. But the, I think the play-in tournament is here to stay. And I don't think they really changed the lottery reform. Um, the, the, there'll be a window to see how long it takes. Um, the NBA likes to, when they make a big swing, they like to they like to puff their chest out and own it for a while, it seems like. So I, I think these current you know four, four drawings, the bottom three teams at 14%, I think that'll be the case now for at least the next decade or so. And then maybe you know another generation of analytical guys will pop up and start tanking again, and uh, the wheel will keep on spinning. It is so interesting that the narrative matters so much. And if, if that narrative doesn't exist right now, even though it's still happening, then it's then we've problem solved. Then we've solved tanking everybody. It's fine now. <laughs> yeah, I mean the fact that NBA Twitter is a thing is kind of beyond me. But when you talk <laughs> to executives and coaches, like they know. They know they have the pressure to win the trade immediately. They want to get the immediate reaction column and have an A plus and not just win the trade, but have beat the opponent, beat the other front office on the trade. They need to have, you know, the the, the highlight of the night trending on their social account like it's been a real um unforeseen circumstance i think of how social media has helped grow the game and expand it it's also made that process and that feedback channel from fans back to the ownership groups and management that more streamlined too yeah absolutely well your book is called built to lose how the nba's tanking era changed the league forever it is on sale today from triumph books everyone go go read it thank you so much for joining us jake really appreciate it yeah thank you guys for having me all right that will do it for this week's show we'll be back in your feed next tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us on apple podcasts it helps new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>